Hi, it's Zoe, and welcome to the show of all things people stuff in leadership. And if you want to participate in the conversation and share your ideas, your thoughts, your questions for the interviewees or for me, head on over to our Facebook page. It's the Zoe Ralph Leadership Podcast on Facebook, or you can click on the link in the show descriptions right there in your podcast app. Love to have a conversation with you and find out what you're thinking, hey? So tonight's guest is a big thinker. He's had an amazing career. He's a bit of a computer geek, self-confessed. He set up a number of businesses, and in our show, he explains his rags to riches to rags to re-exploration again, as well as some of the key lessons he's had along the way about leadership, about people stuff, and particularly around creativity. He says that there are top three workplaces that we need to grow and cultivate for 2020 and beyond. And this is from the World Economic Forum, and they are creative thinking, problem solving, and cognitive flexibility. So how do you do that? Well, he's written a number of books on the subject of creativity, and his latest one is called The Creative Thinking Handbook, Your Step-by-Step Guide to Problem Solving in Business. Our guest is, his name is Chris Griffiths. He is the world-leading creativity coach, speaker, and CEO. He's had 20 years experience setting up and leading successful businesses that have ranked in the Deloitte European Fast 50 and the Sunday Times Fast Track 100. He sold his first company at the age of 26, and he tells us in the interview of all the things that he did wrong immediately after that and how he bounced back. Ah, I love this interview. He's got such great insights around creativity. Let's get into it. So great to have you, Chris Griffiths, all the way from dun, 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 Wales. It's the first time I've had a Welshman on the call. So welcome. Great to be with you, Zoe. Really excited to be uh, talking to you today. Oh, yeah, no more excited than I am because you've had such a rich history. There's so much I want to mine your experience for. Uh, you've set up and led many different businesses. You've written a book and you were kind of a master at creative thinking and all sorts of juicy stuff. So I want to rewind a little bit and ask you this question, which is one that a lot of leaders wrestle with, is how do you define leadership? And when did you first realize you could actually do leadership? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, how, how do you define leadership? I, I don't really consider myself a leader, I guess. Um, I, I suppose it's happening by, by default. It's not something that I aspired to be a leader. It's just that I guess my passion and my love for uh, creativity and innovation and my playground is the, the corporate world has meant that um, I engage in things and then people follow. So um, for me, leadership wasn't something that I set out to do um, or even become a leader. If, if anything, Zoe, I was the least likely person ever to lead anything. Um, gosh. You know, where was my first experience of leadership? I guess it was when um, when I was still in school and uh, I was a very typical computer nerd, uh, wasn't very athletic, got beaten up now and again by, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the let's say the jocks, the, uh, the, the bullies in the school. It was, a, it was an all boys school. It was a, it was a good school, but it was, it was quite tough, um, Barry boys. Um, and something happened. When I was uh, 16, I'd lived in Cleveland, Ohio for, for many years, and I then lived in Birmingham, Alabama. 
and I had a passion for American football and I wanted Why? to play American football. <laughs> it's, like, it's just the best, best sport ever invented. Uh, rugby is a close second, um, but I got to be careful as a Welshman, rugby should always be first. Um, and I wanted to play American football, but there was no American football teams in our sort of local area. So I decided to start an American football team, one of the most least likely individuals in a boys' school you could ever imagine wanting to start an American football team. You know, people just saw me as some computer nerd that sat in the corner and wrote computer games. And that was a really fascinating experience. And even to this day, I, I look back on it and I think, gosh, that changed me in so many ways because I, I, I set up the team and all of a sudden, a lot of the big guys were starting to come and play for me. Uh, in the end, we had a team of about 30 players, uh, an under-18s team, um, and these were some of the biggest, meanest people you, you could imagine. And they were all listening to what I was saying. They were all doing what I was saying. And I thought, this is strange because athletically, I can't compete with anyone, any of them. But they're following me. So I guess to answer your question, what was my, my sort of first foray into leadership? That would be it. And I learned from that that you don't have to be a polished leader. You don't have to be a great orator. You don't have to be somebody that everyone looks up to and everyone admires. All you've got to be is respected and helping people to do something that they want to do. So all those guys wanted to do was play American football. And I was the channel that allowed them to do it. So all of a sudden I became the leader. I became respected, not because of my athletic ability, but because I pulled the team together, because I had the knowledge and the wherewithal to make it happen. You know, that, that did change me massively because I just saw that you don't have to try too hard. You just have to do what you love, be authentic. And if people respect you and they want to come with you, you're naturally going to lead them. So I, there's so much wonderfulness in what you just shared. And I love the the idea that it wasn't about you actually like you didn't have to prove yourself or anything it's just you had a passion for football it's like well we're gonna play it I'm gonna have somebody's gonna do it I might as well be me and you drew together people who shared the same passion what is it that you think that they respected about you if it wasn't your athletic prowess and it wasn't your natural look at me ability the natural out there extroverted charisma that you often see associated with some types of leadership what do you think was it about you that invited respect from the others? Um, do you know what? I haven't, haven't actually thought about that. But now you ask me the question, uh, I can see quite clearly what the answer to that is. And it, it, you know, it, it obviously fits into the, the skill sets required by good leaders, is that I've always been somebody that has vision. You know, there was no one else there making that, that sport a possibility at that time. And we're talking you know, a long time ago now. And I, I guess the fact that I had the vision and the capabilities of making it happen. I mean, to play American football, it's not as easy as just going to a field with a group of guys and playing. You know, you have to have a whole gridiron pitch created. Myself and my father at the time, obviously my, my dad had lived in America for a long time. You know, he, he was instrumental in, in helping make this happen. But the fact was they saw that, I guess I was somebody with the vision of making it happen and could make it happen, and therefore they followed and respected what I was doing. Just curious about the gridiron pitch. Does that mean like putting lines on the field? Is that what you mean by creating a pitch? Yeah, you had to have the lines. You, had, you obviously um, had to have the field posts at either end. 
but the gridiron pitch is obviously quite a complex pitch because you know every 10 yards you've got markings and then you've got yard markings throughout the pitch so you couldn't even adapt a rugby pitch or a football pitch you had to have a specific pitch created and we we was that was more my father than myself but he agreed with the local council that they would actually put that facility in um and, you know and that was quite a, a big undertaking for the for the local government to do yeah so you had to negotiate with local government as well my goodness so this is not just like hey let's get together and play football no, this is actually no, quite this, this was a, industrious a, thing you know I mean, there was a there was a couple of teams around the UK. There wasn't many teams, and you know, you'd have to travel a long way to play other teams. But you know, for two years, it was just a great, great time. A great bunch of people, completely different mix of people. As I said, there's me, a computer nerd. But American football is quite strategic, so you you need sort of analytical thinkers in in American football uh, as well as out and out athletes. Um, so you had a complete mix of individuals. It was a really great time. Wow. Okay. Well, you've given me a new insight into a sport that I have not had much insight into before. (laughs) (laughs) It's obviously a little bit more complex than I imagined. Um, So you've gone from like computer geek nerd in the corner to orchestrating a big football league organization complete with negotiating with local government to get it all set up to setting up your own IT business. What the... So tell me about that. Like, how did you conceive of the idea? Hey, I'm going to set up a, like an IT company. And what were some key challenges that you experienced along the way? Well, um, gosh, again, it started back when I was uh, sort of 16. I, I didn't really get on too well in school, even though I was a computer nerd. I, I didn't go that often to school. I was more interested in uh, writing uh, computer games at the time. Uh, actually American football games, as, as you can imagine. And I just found that I had a passion for creating things and developing things. And I, I guess that that's led me to where I am now is that, again, that passion for understanding creativity and innovation and making it repeatable and systematic. And um, at 16, I launched um, some computer games. They did very well. At 18, <laughs> I mean, you've got to laugh. So at 18, I, I failed my um, computer science A-level exam. And I didn't just fail it. I had the lowest of the low. I had an unclassified. And the reason I had the unclassified um, was because I wasn't going to school because I felt, well, look, I'm creating computer games. I know what I'm doing in the field that I was in at the time. So I thought I could just turn up at the exam and get an A-star star. Um, of course, you turn up at the exam and the questions that they ask aren't relative to the work that I've been doing in terms of computer programming. They were, let's say, more generic type of computer science questions. And, and again, that, that was a really interesting point for me because I'm a firm believer in education is a great thing. It gives you lots of dots to join. And the more dots you have to join, the more creative you can be. But we also have to, to realize that education without engagement is just a waste of children's time and energy and effort. And that was where I was sitting. I wasn't engaged, I wasn't interested. I wanted to be learning through doing, which is my computer programming. So at 18, I started working for Amiga computer systems and I was writing a computer language at the time. And I thought, well, actually I prefer to work for myself. Uh, So I set up my first tech company 
when I was about 19. That, oh that went goodness. very well. I, sorry? That's, I'm just that's so bloody young. It's <laughs> oh, amazing. Thanks. And uh, that went very well. And I, I sold that company when I was 26. And then I had a very hard life lesson. You see, when you're 26 and you've sold a business and you have five sports cars out on your drive, you feel like everything that you touch will turn to gold and the hubris begins to set in. And, and this is something that I say to everyone that's doing well, don't let the hubris set in. Never be afraid to be balanced in your thinking because what I did next was invest in a telecommunications company where I lost absolutely everything. Really? Because I felt that, yeah, I, I, I felt I couldn't do anything wrong. So I jumped into this new technology that no one was doing around the world. And I've missed a very important point that if you develop a new technology that's aimed at large organizations, you need a lot of resources to do it because the risk for them to take on board a very new novel technology from a small company is very high. So I didn't go bust, but I had to sell that. And I pretty much lost absolutely everything that I built up. I lost my my cars, I lost my house, oh. um, I lost my partner at the time. The thing that hurt most was losing my Maserati, but um, it, was, <laughs> it, was a great, it was a great learning lesson. And um, then I- Can I just ask, because people are gonna wanna know. They're gonna know, sure. okay, so you had a Maserati. What else did you have in the garage that you had to get rid of? Oh gosh, I, I, I had two Maseratis, I had, a Jaguar XJS, the old, the Saints car. I don't know whether you, you remember the old films of the Saints, Alfa Romeo. Um, Jeez. And uh, the, the other one was a, a Nissan 200, which was a, a really pretty Japanese sports car. Um, but my one of my Maseratis was one of only 30 ever made. Oh, so no. it was it was quite sad to... Uh, to see that go, but it was a great lesson, Zoe. You know, when you when you go through that, you you know you're going to go one or two ways. You're either going to give up or you're going to carry on. And you know, my favourite quote, you know, until this day, is that winners fail more times than losers try. You know, winners fail more times than losers even try. So for me, it was just a knock. So I thought, well, you know, just you know, get back out there, do it again. I started up another company from absolutely nothing. It was an ed tech company. It was all about delivering um, educational content to students using gamification. And, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s, the word gamification didn't even exist. Yeah. We all talk about it now. And we came up against massive barriers because educators at the time were, look, children shouldn't be in in, in, in school to play computer games, but our research and our tools were showing that if you let them play a game and engage them, they learn more than if you just give them the content and expect them to absorb it. And, and that company went very, very well. It became one of the fastest growing companies um, in Europe. It was a tech track um, 100 company in the UK and a European fast 50 technology company. Uh, and that was really exciting. And uh, we, we grew that over seven years. And that, that's where I came across the mind mapping process that was invented by Tony Bazan, um, who sadly passed away last year. 
And I, I found the mind mapping process to be such a simple process, but such a powerful process of actually capturing and growing thoughts with a lot of structure. You know, a lot of people use lists and lists are unstructured thinking that people don't realize that they actually stop you thinking effectively. And that's where it led to where I am today in Open Genius. Uh, we, we, I say we, I set up another company called Open Genius, which became my main focus. Open Genius um, has been about delivering technology solutions that allow people to think and create in a much more effective way than, than um, otherwise, because you know we're in an interesting time. It's the first time in human history that people do a lot of their thinking in front of a box. You know, the computer didn't exist 50 years ago and people don't realize the impact that that has on their ability to think. Um, I mean, just think about it. We now have access to vast amounts of information. So we can all find out what we need to know when we need to know it, which is a great thing, but it actually is leading to a lot of sameness happening because people find the same answers. Um, so people need tools and techniques that, that help them think more creatively, more generatively, and then turn those ideas into action. And that's you know, our, our main product, which is AOA, AOA.com, uh, is a product that's designed to help people do that. Because you know, knowledge isn't power anymore, Zoe. You, you can have all the knowledge in the world. It, it, even the use of knowledge isn't power. It's the creation of new knowledge that is the real power in, in today's fast-moving um, economy. Okay, so I have a couple of questions, like very exciting stuff. And I like your observation that, we, yeah, we now do a lot of thinking in front of a box and that yeah. is empowering and disabling all at once. I have questions around all these companies that you built. Yeah. There's vision, there's creativity involved with that and there's people. So in your journey of building these exciting business enterprises, what are some of the things that you've learned about people along the way? Well, I guess one of the lessons that I learned, and it, I suppose it was more I was taught rather than it was learned by me through my experiences, is that everyone thinks differently. So to try and assume that people are thinking like you do or understand what you're doing or trying to achieve is almost wrong. You have to have an acceptance that everyone is very different in um, how they perceive things. For me, that was an important change for my career, I guess, because before it was, this is my vision, this is what we're gonna do, this is how we're gonna achieve it, and everyone will understand. And that isn't the case, it really isn't. So once you become aware of that, you have to look at everyone as, as individuals. I'm, I'm not um, a high energy leader. I'm not a very sociable person, uh, being from a sort of a, a, a tech introverted um, background. Uh, so for me, it's, it's trying to listen to my team to see what they actually mean when they say something. And that, that, that's a challenge and it's, it, it's difficult. And obviously none of us are gonna get that right. But one of our partners in the Middle East asked me to come and uh, watch one of his sermons. He was um, a preacher. I can't remember what the religion was, but his, his sermon was just about how 
all of us see the world through you know physical eyes but we're all seeing it differently and we all understand things differently and once you can accept that the world becomes a much more comfortable place and I, I think that's where I've changed as a leader so rather than just expecting people to understand you spend a lot more time as a leader trying to help people see what you're trying to achieve in different ways. So you said you were taught that as opposed to you learnt it through experience. Yeah. Were you given some harsh feedback or did someone give you a kindness of like, this is what to expect as a leader? Um, I, I think, do you know what? There's harsh feedback. That's an interesting one. I had some harsh feedback from one of the team uh, very recently. And I think that's another key to being a leader. I, I, everyone has different styles, but... I always want to know that people can come and say anything they want to me in the organization. I might not agree with it, but at least we can have a discussion about it. But um, yeah, one of the team came to me recently and said, Chris, you know, we had a conversation and you promised that uh, you do something for me and um, you haven't done it. And uh, he said, it's just not good, Chris. And I said, well, give me time. We had the conversation. I know we've had the conversation and I'm still going to do it. And then he just said, Chris, it's been five months. And that's a, an awful situation to be in because, you know, quite often for all of us, the world is moving at such a fast pace that you can't always deliver what you are promising that you will deliver. And if you don't do that, that's such a demotivating thing for your team. So I, I was so glad that somebody felt that they could come to me and say that to me. Um, so that I could take some action and, and do something about it. So, yeah, I guess that's that's being taught by a member of your team. And I, I think that's, you know, critically important as leaders that um, you have to follow as much as you lead with the team because, you know, there's no way, there's no way you can do it on your own. Yes, there are examples of individual that can autocratically become successful, but... Look, I'm, I'm no expert, but I'm sure they're in the minority and it, it's people that can work with people on an even level that, that, that are the ones that are more, more likely to succeed. So when you get given pieces of feedback like that from your team, like, Chris, it's not good enough. It's been five months. You promised you haven't delivered. It's, yeah. That's a pretty sort of like, you know, yeah, you're going to do it, but really five months already? Yeah. How, how do you feel when you get that? It's kind of like, well, whatever, I'll get it done. Or do you, what's your emotional response? Um, I think incredibly dis feeling incredibly disappointed with yourself. You know, uh, as a leader, you, you have to try and set examples. None of us are perfect. And, and to try and be perfect is a, is a very dangerous game. So, you know, when you're given that feedback, you know that that's something that you've let somebody else down with. And um, no one likes to let anyone else down, especially members of your team our team have been with us for for a long time so I, I i see them more as friends than as than as colleagues so yeah i, I guess incredibly disappointed to get that that feedback and um you know then what you do is you take immediate action which is exactly um what i did yeah it's kind of harsh yeah it's like oh i let them down that sucks and yet you've done so many amazing things and I love that you turn that around and say, okay, well, opportunity to redeem myself by learning and cleaning up as quickly as I can. There's something in your biography that I read. I went, whoa, that sounds like a very cool experience. I'd love you to share a little bit more about it. And let me see where it is. 
Oh, yeah. You were invited by His Majesty King Abdullah II of Jordan to facilitate a brainstorming session of Nobel laureates at the Petra, did I pronounce that properly? Nobel Conference. Yeah, you did. Yep. So what the? Like you get all these Nobel laureates in a room together and you run a brainstorming session on behalf of King Abdullah of Jordan? How A, how does that happen? And B, was that intimidating <laughs> to be in front of all those Nobel laureates to run a brainstorming session? Yeah, it's, uh, oh gosh, um, where do I start with that one? You know, I was very lucky to to work with Tony Bazan for, for many, many years. And to Tony was one of the best speakers in the world. And I learned a lot from him about, you know, when you're speaking or facilitating in large groups, you don't need to worry about too much. Just be yourself, talk about things that you really are passionate about and everything will, will just happen. And over the years, I started writing books on uh, creativity and innovation. And uh, obviously I got noticed by uh, one or two people. I've, I've, I've worked for several royal families actually, but this one was the biggest thing I'd been ever asked to do. It was a, a fascinating conference. You had leaders, political leaders from all over the world. You had religious leaders, you had Nobel laureates. So you had some of the world's most preeminent thinkers. Um, everyone from scientists to the Dalai Lama were there. And, and I was asked to facilitate one of the brainstorming sessions. And again, for me, that was a defining moment for me and where I decided to take my um, business, my, 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 my focus, I guess. Because even though I'd had a lot of experience and understanding in facilitating brainstorming, I felt that I didn't do a great job. So it was the biggest thing I'd ever been asked to do. And I felt it was one of the biggest failures that I'd ever encountered because I had a room of immense intelligence and knowledge and it just didn't work. From the perspective of the delegates in the room, everyone thought it was great and it was fine and it was a, you know, it was a, an effective session. But we were talking about some, you know, really important issues, child poverty, child starvation, what can we do to, to make a big dent in, in the issue? And when I left that, that event, which, you know, it was beyond impressive, I felt I could have done so much better. And I spent the next year trying to understand what went wrong. How could have I got more out of those people that were there? And by doing a lot of uh, research with uh, Melina Costi, who's one of my co-authors, we could see that there's a lot of science that shows that cognitive biases come into play, um, especially for people that are very successful in their career. And basically what broke down was that I delivered it like a normal brainstorming session, the same sort of brainstorming sessions that everyone has with post-it notes. And uh, yes, there was some mind mapping technology being used and all the rest of it. But what I came to the ultimate understanding of was that to be successful with your brainstorming, you've got to put structure and process behind it. Most people have no idea what it means to brainstorm. They think a brainstorm is just the grabbing of ideas and putting them on post-it notes or writing them on walls. That's just one small 
part of it. And that, that led me on the journey to write a book. And the book was Gross, The Solution. Uh, and basically that book was there trying to explain what you need to do to actually be more successful when you try and be creative and, and try and be innovative. And, you know, that was, that was an exciting, exciting time. And, and I've written several other books that they're all about systemizing creativity. If you put a process behind it, it can be so much more effective. I love this. So that, that particular book was called Grasp the Solution? Yes. Yeah. Okay, Grasp the Solution. So I love this fascinating insight. And how amazing that you could have all these super intelligent people in one room and the brainstorming session is like, meh. <laughs> and one of the things you discovered was cognitive bias is there. So this was your experience then with all these highly successful, intelligent people. There were cognitive biases at play. There were interfering with the ability to generate new insights. Is that, is that sort of what you were alluding to? Well, it is. And, um, you know, if you think about it, it's not something that we, we learn. Uh, we don't learn how to think creatively. We don't learn how to be innovative. Typically, we learn how to absorb knowledge. And we've got it kind of the wrong way around. In education, you need to teach both. And, you know, it's only really in the last decade that lots of authors and experts are, are now starting to come out with helping people understand how their brain works and how it thinks. And once you've got an understanding of some of these things, you can be so much more effective. It's not rocket science. It's all common sense. And that's what we found is that, you know, if you put a process behind your uh, innovation initiatives or your brainstorming events, uh, all of a sudden it becomes so much more effective. Even now today, it, it, it's crazy. You know, people will We've set up, basically, we, we, we've set up a global network of facilitators and innovators. So this isn't, this isn't all coming from, from me. This is coming from um, over a thousand people that I work with that are constantly working with clients to help them solve problems and, and, and be more creative. So it's based on a lot of real world experience. And you know, even today, people don't understand why their brainstorming sessions fail. Um, getting, getting a group of people together and saying, right, we need to come up with solutions to this problem is just counterintuitive because you're not doing things in the right steps. And if you don't do things in the right way, you fall foul of cognitive biases that because you don't know you're doing it, you're completely unaware that you're falling into these traps. Once you become aware of those traps, then you can do something about it. Okay, okay, quick stop i've got so many questions um yeah okay so the right steps in brainstorming help avoid cognitive bias traps so what are the right steps in a brainstorming session do i need to read your entire book or can you go the like top three <laughs> well there's there's look if you're trying to solve a problem and it's a it's a big problem it's a big challenge for you as an individual or as or as an organization you have to go through four definable steps mm -hmm. and people don't do it people do not do this so the first the first stage is understanding what the challenge really is defining what the problem is you know and that's the most important stage einstein said if he had 60 minutes to save the planet he'd spend 55 minutes defining the problem and five minutes finding the solution now i i, I don't believe in that ratio but his point was very clear that most 
people solve the wrong problem. So they don't get anywhere. So defining the problem is critical. Then generating the ideas. Now, people think that brainstorming is generating the ideas, but they don't realize that the way that they brainstorm is not generative. So if you get a group of individuals together to brainstorm, typically what happens is you put everyone into a um, reactive state of mind. So Jane will come up with a solution and then everyone else in that room will start doing three things, just three things. They'll think, do I agree with Jane? And if so, how can I support her? Do I disagree with Jane? If so, how can I put forward my arguments? Or they'll sit on the fence and they don't know anything. But essentially what you've done by Jane putting forward that idea has stopped the entire group from thinking generatively. They are now in the analytical stage, which is the third stage. So, for example, when you brainstorm, gosh, there are some simple things that you can do that they sound obvious, Zoe, but people don't do them. Uh, first of all, anyone that's going to be in a brainstorm, they need to do it individually first. If you don't brain individually first, you're falling foul of reactive thinking. So, you know, don't allow people to wing it. Make sure that they come prepared. Make sure that they've allowed their, their brain to to pull together some, some ideas before they even get together in a group. Then the next stage is don't try and have long brainstorming sessions because people will sit there for half a day, a day, a weekend in a strategy weekend. Let's solve this problem. Let's, let's get down and really push the way through it. A completely wrong way to go about it. I mean, let me ask you a question. Where, where do you get your best ideas, Zoe? Oh, usually when I'm not at the computer. <laughs> It's like I'm walking, I'm meditating, I'm in the shower, I'm driving. That is the same for all of us. So why on earth is it that, especially in the corporate world, we think that the way that we brainstorm and solve problems is having these long meetings to try and get ideas out there. So for instance, what we recommend is very small sprints. So a brainstorming session should never be more than 45 to 60 minutes. And then you, you stop. Because it's after you stop that people come up with the genuinely different solutions. Because, of course, they get out of the room, their brain starts to incubate the ideas and connect them in different ways. So they'll have a realization which they couldn't have had when they were in the group. So rather than having one eight-hour session in a day, have eight one-hour sessions across multiple days because you're allowing people time to incubate their thoughts. And then the final two stages are evaluating ideas. How do you evaluate ideas? And finally, how do you actually make it happen? Uh, so many people say to us, we have no problem as an organization generating ideas. Nothing ever happens. So if you put all of that together, you're more likely to have success in your sort of um, innovation uh, challenges and programs. That was really cool. Thank you for sharing those definitive steps. Which book are these in? Are they in one of your books or many of your books? <laughs> it's, it's in my newest book, which is the Creative Thinking Handbook. I love it. That's going straight on the purchase list. Creative Thinking oh, thanks, Handbook. Um, awesome. Okay. So <laughs> along with this, like, you've got some interesting little tidbits in your press release that I wanted to get into. And um, whoever wrote these, if it was you, good job, because they're really like, oh, I want to know what that is. Um, 
This one, what your to-do list says about you. Analysis by creativity experts. So my to-do list, I'm like, tell me about that. So tell me what, I'm scared, kind of scared to ask. <laughs> what does our to-do list tell us about us? Uh, yeah, well, that you know, that's down to um, Cara that um, no doubt you've been communicating with. She's got a, a genius mind when it comes to, uh, to putting copy together. Well, first and foremost, with to-do lists and productivity software, most people, when you look at them, are falling into a trap again. So they are following a broken philosophy. So let me give you an example. To-do lists, task management software, they're quite linear. You know, you have your list of things in, in order. And what they're designed to do is help you be more productive and uh, do things quicker. But therein lies the rub, as Shakespeare would say. It's not about doing things quicker. It's about doing the right things. So I could give you technology that helps you do more tasks in less time. But if all that does is get you to the wrong place quicker, am I actually helping you? So when it comes to to-do lists, what you notice is that some people will look very linearly at to-do lists, and that's dangerous. Others will have more whole picture uh, thinking strategies. Uh, so they'll use uh, visual tools to allow them to see what needs to be done and when it needs to be done. So they're a bit more flexible, they're more fluid. They do things not because they're in a list, they do things because they can see how it fits into the overall picture. Now, that's the correct philosophy. Very few people do that yet. So I'm wondering if you, you use mind mapping to do that so you can see where the little task fits in the bigger structure? Is that a, a well, way of uh, reinventing the yeah, to Yeah, mind mapping is, is, is one way of doing it. I, I mean, any visual structure that allows you to see things radiantly is going to make a big difference. Linear thinking is, is something that we kind of naturally fall into because it's, it's normal to us. You know, the way that we write is sequential, it's linear. But yes, mind mapping is, is a, a process that allows you to see the whole picture um, and, you know, there's, there's lots of other visual processes that allow you to see the, the whole picture. But I think that the key point here for anyone that's really interested in this is if the way that you manage yourself is by a, a linear list, what are you doing to create the list? And if what you're trying to do is just create the list as you go, that's very dangerous because you need something. I mean, we're visual thinkers. It's our primary sense. So you need something that shows you the whole picture so that you can decide, well, what should you do next? Okay, that's awesome. I just want to take my little to-do list, which is linear, <laughs> and um, start over. So you've got another item here, and it'll be my last question, is the top three workplace skills to harness for 2020 and beyond. I'm guessing creativity might be one of them, but <laughs> tell me about, tell me. What are the top three workplace skills that we need for 2020 and beyond? It's, um, well, if you look at the World Economic Forum, they ask thousands of um, business leaders every year, what are the key skills that uh, people are going to need? And for the last few years, and it's not going to change, it's going to become more important that the same things keep coming up. It's the creative thinking. It's the problem solving. It's the critical thinking. It's the cognitive flexibility, the ability to be able to, to think in lots of different ways rather than being very 
narrow in your thinking. We all know this is the case because we're moving into a world of automation. We're moving into a world of artificial intelligence. We shouldn't see those things as scary or uh, negative because they take jobs. What we should see is that those things free us up to do what humans do best. Humans do best in terms of their ability to add value, to create, to innovate. We are not designed to be robots. So I see the future as being a really positive thing. Uh, ultimately, if, when you speak to your team, the people that feel the most valued are the ones that feel like they're adding something new. They're, they're not just doing, they're adding value. They're, they're using their, their brain to innovate and come up with solutions or things people have never thought about. And that's really exciting. So it's quite ironic that the skills that the World Economic Forum say are going to be critically important to us over the next decade are skills that still are not taught um, in education. And actually, even in the corporate world, very few people are taught how to be more creative. Mm. I agree with that. So one of the masterclasses I run in my training programs is around that uh, creative thinking skills and uh, innovation skills. And so that's why I'm like, oop, yep, definitely going to suck up your book and <laughs> tear that apart. That's going to be awesome. Excellent. I, yeah, I agree with that. Like, we shouldn't be training knowledge workers. We should be training creative thinkers and uh, Absolutely. problem solvers. That's what I'm excited about. So where can people find out more about you? Where should we send them on the interwebs? Well, really, there's two websites. If you're interested in the technology that we develop, that helps you be more creative and get things done in a more effective manner, you can go to aoa.com and that is A-Y-O-A.com, AOA. And if anyone asks, it doesn't mean anything. It's a word that we invented. Our products are translated into to languages all, all across the world. So we didn't want to pick an English word because we felt that we wanted to create a new word and give it meaning. So aoa.com for anyone interested. There is a completely free version, so uh, you don't even have to get your wallet out to use it. So um, hang on a second. You made up a word and gave it meaning. So what's the meaning behind aoa? <laughs> aoa. Um, the meaning behind aoa is very much what you make it. I suppose if you were to ask me that, aoa is all about using technology to be very holistic, to be very balanced. It's to create a nice, fun, engaging place to do a lot of your thinking and your work and your organizing. It allows you to do that sort of creative aspect along with the critical thinking aspect all in one place. So for me, it was looking for a word that was very holistic in nature. And uh, we felt AOA sounded very holistic. It sounded very much like nature. And Mother Nature is the world's best innovator. So uh, I guess we're kind of um, naming it after her. All I think of is like Canadian American and something else. Hey, yo, ah. <laughs> I like uh, it. Sounds good. <laughs> uh, yeah, cognitive diversity. So that's your tech site. What's the other one? Well, if, if you're just generally interested in creativity and uh, innovation and the process that goes behind it, uh, you can go to opengenius.com. Open Genius is the the global network of trainers and facilitators, basically experts in, in innovation. We um, 
are always looking for, for new partners across the globe there as well. So it, it's, it's a, a network of individuals that basically have focused their, their, their time and their lives on helping people think and create uh, in, in a more effective way. That's cool. I love the whole word, the whole phrase, actually, open genius. That's Thank very you. provocative on its own. That's wonderful. Chris, you've been amazing. Thank you so much. I learned so much from our conversation. Well, it's my evening, your morning. So I really appreciate Thanks, your attention. And I'm amazed at your prolific book writing because it takes a lot of effort to come out with books. So good on you for that. And thank you for your contributions in the world and the contributions to our wonderful little podcast. Oh, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Could have spoken to you for hours. Thanks, Zoe. Whoa, was there some cool stuff in that interview? Probably the key takeaway for me is making my to-do list a visual thing, not just a list thing. This was kind of so obvious to me now after he said it. I'm like, duh, I'm totally going to do that. I'm going to take my to-do list and make it a visual thing so I can find out and see where the little things I'm doing are contributing to the bigger picture. might help me prioritize a little bit better too. After we clicked end of the recording of the interview, we also had a sensational conversation around the Dunning-Kruger effect. And that's how a little bit of knowledge makes us feel like we're a lot smarter than we are. And it's one of the cognitive biases that we can definitely avoid. So I'm going to include that in the show notes. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I look forward to hearing what you have to say about it on the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast Facebook page or send me an email at zoe at In the meantime, live well, lead well.